One of the consistent themes God has been dealing with me about for several, several months now is that he is far greater than I have ever realized. One of the prayers that that I have been praying at least all of this year, if not late into last year, is the prayer of Moses from Exodus 33, verse 18, where he prayed for God to show him his glory. I want to see God as great as he is. I want to know God better than I have ever known him before. I want us as a church to know God, to see God as great as he is and to know him better than we have ever known him before. Understanding God's greatness, understanding seeing God's glory, it alleviates many of our anxieties because we know our great and awesome God is in control. It also changes our devotion. A great God who has done great things is worthy Of a great devotion. And what is needed. Because this world. Constantly tries to blind. Our minds. To the greatness and the glory. Of God. And so what has to be done is. We must put forth intentional effort. To lift our eyes. To look at his glory. To seek his glory. Because we never drift in the way of seeing God as great. We never drift toward peace and lack of anxiety. We don't drift towards great devotion to a great God. We, we drift in the opposite ways. So we need to, at times, lift our eyes to see God's greatness and pray as Moses did. For God to show us his glory. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Exodus 33. We're going to start in verse 12. It's a really long passage. um, But it's not as long as it's going to sound in the sermon. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. It should be on page 71 in your pew Bible. Then Moses said to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Now, then, if I have found favor in your sight in any way, please let me know your ways so that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And then the Lord said to Moses, I will Also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, please show me your glory. 
And God said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. He further said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on a rock and it will come about while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets, which you smashed. So be ready by morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one is to come up with you, nor let anyone be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. Moses got up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he, Moses, called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoings, violation of his law and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren for a third and fourth generation. And Moses hurried to bow down. Toward the ground and worship. And then he said. If in any way I have found favor in your sight. Lord. Please. May the Lord go along in our midst. Even though the people are so obstinate. And pardon our wrongdoing. And our sin. And take us. As your own possession. Title of the message is show me your glory. Let's pray. Father we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise. And worthy. Of our devotion. Lord our. Our view of you, Lord, it's just far too human. Lord, I say this knowing that we love you, that we believe your word, that we are devoted to you. But Lord, your word tells us that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Lord, the indication in that seems to be we can't fully grasp how great and awesome and powerful you are. There's just always going to be something just beyond our our grasp, something we can't fully understand. And, And yet. Your word also tells us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. He reveals to us the deep things about you. He leads us to all truth and he opens our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. So we see that there is. Always more to understand. But if we're. If we're willing. If we're sincere. There's always more we will be understanding. Father, we come this morning with that desire. We pray the prayer of Moses today. 
Show us your glory. Give us as much as you, as much of you as we can handle. And then make us able to handle more. Forgive us, Lord, where we have maybe gotten bored with you. Forgive us, Lord, where we have found other things more compelling than you. Forgive us. Where the level of devotion from our life does not reflect the greatness of our God and the great things he has done for us. We confess those things as sin. We repent of them. Today we plead for you to work in us. To enlarge our understanding of you. Deepen our devotion to you. And when we understand that and our devotion is there, that we would experience the peace that passes all understanding. Have your way this morning in all of our hearts, all of our lives. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This passage picks up after the incident with the golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain and he calls on the people to repent of their sins and turn back to God. God tells the people to get ready, tells Moses, get the people ready to go ahead and lead them into the promised land. But then God tells Moses, my angel will go before you to lead the way. He will fight for you, but I myself am not going. I won't go because you're too obstinate, you're too rebellious, and I might end up having to kill you all. And after a a statement like that, Moses responds and, and says then we won't go either. God, we we don't want to go if you're not going to be there. We'll just stay here with you. You're better than the promised land. You're better than the land of milk and honey. You're better than anything else. Now, what's so significant about this? Is not only does it show the level of love and devotion Moses has for God, it shows Moses has a really good idea of how great and glorious and wonderful God truly is. Now, remember, Exodus is the Exodus. They have only recently left slavery in Egypt. They were slaves for 300 years or so. And what kept them going in their time of slavery was the fact that their God would visit them again. He would lead them out and he would take them into the promised land. And they would go from a land of burden and little to a land of prosperity and peace. And that was what kept them going. That was the thing that motivated them every day they got up. And they kept on in slavery. Every day they kept training their children who were born in slavery to to love God, serve God, be devoted to God because he would visit them and he would take them into the promised land. Moses, just like the rest of them, had spent the majority of his life longing for that day. And now the day is here. 
And God still says, I'm going to give you the promised land. Everything, what you have always longed for, what you've always wanted, I'm going to give it to you. But you don't get me in the process. You get the promised land, but not the one who gave you the land. And Moses says, no. No. Not going. I don't want to go without you. God's presence was worth more to Moses than the promised land. He would just stay there and live in tents and never have a home if it meant getting to be with God. As far as Moses was concerned, God was the greatest thing there was. And the promised land would not be anything special if God wasn't there. Moses' love for the Lord, Moses' desire to be with God is what leads to the prayer in verse 18. Show me your glory. Now, I think it's interesting because Moses, more than anyone, has seen God's glory. He has already been up on the mountain with God. He had the Ten Commandments, came down, broke them. Moses has had far more experiences with God and His presence, seeing His glory than than anyone else at this point had. And what Moses says is, "I, I just want a little more, God. I just want more of You. I want to know You better. I want to have deeper fellowship with You. I want to better understand who You are and what You're like. I want to better grasp Your greatness and Your glory and Your worthiness. Now, I will say with this, that if Moses, who had had the experiences he had, Wants more. It's crying out for more. How much more should we cry out the same way? We have not had a billionth of the experiences of God's glory that Moses has had. We should long for it and crave it and cry out for it all the more. And here's what's great. God in his goodness is going to allow Moses to see a measure of his glory. That's what the passage is. God doing, answering Moses' prayer to do what he asked. The lesson for us is that God does reveal his glory to those who genuinely seek him and those who seek his glory. This is... This is the main thing I want us to know today. There are three points to the sermon, but this is the key thing. If we learn this and we believe this, it'll be life altering for us. God reveals his glory to those who genuinely seek him and his glory. I mean, one of the truths we we learn in God's word is that that he wants to be known by us far more than we want to know him. I mean, you you think about how anyone knows God. How did anyone know God in the Old Testament? God sought them out. 
Even his rebellious people, when they rebelled, he sought them through his prophets. He he reached out to them. How did you come to know God? The Spirit of God reached out to you. You you and I, we didn't sit at home one day and just be like, I think I need to know God. I think I want to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. God initiated contact with us. We come to Him because He first came to us. The psalmist says, I have heard your voice, O God, saying, seek my face. Your face, O God, I will seek. Jesus said no one comes to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. God's great desire is to be known. He wants you and I to know him. He wants us to behold his glory. I find that incredibly encouraging. However, with this, we have to realize We must genuinely seek God, genuinely seek God before we experience the promise of finding. Genuinely seek God in his glory. Now, genuinely seeking God in his glory is is as much, if not more, about our attitude than it is the actions we take. How many of us know we can come to church Not really be seeking God in His glory. We can read our Bibles and not really be seeking God in His glory. We we can even pray and not really be seeking God and His glory. There has to be a a more than a checking of the box and the doing the stuff and and a desire. The longing of our heart is to seek God and to see His glory. So from this passage, I want to give you three characteristics of genuinely seeking after God and his glory. We are genuinely seeking God and his glory when we go to God on God's terms. Chapter 33, verse 19 through 23. God agrees. Moses prays, God said, I will make some of my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord there. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious to compassion to whom I'll show compassion. He's going to show Moses his glory. But notice there are limitations, right? Verse 20. You cannot see my face and live. So you won't get to see that. You get to see a part, but you don't get all of it. When we seek God or genuinely seeking God, we we have to come to God accepting his terms. And and I think this can sometimes be a problem for us, Not, not because we have a problem with terms and conditions and standards and limitations and all of that. But we want to negotiate. We we want to make our desire known to God, God to make an offer. We'll make a counter offer. And then we'll come to a place where we both agree. But God doesn't negotiate with anyone. Ever. He's God. He doesn't have to. Instead, what God does is God lays things out 
and says, this, this is what it is. And then in that moment, we have a choice to make. Will we accept his terms or will we reject his terms? And that's always the way it goes. We will accept it or we will reject it. Now, God's terms, some of them are laid out before us in verses 19 through 23. First, God chooses what he will reveal about himself. Look at verse 19. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. Show compassion to whom I'll show compassion. Now, God says he's going to choose what he reveals about himself to Moses. God was going to determine what Moses needed to know about him. And then God would show him that. Moses will have a deeper understanding of God's character and God's nature and the way God acts in the world. Specifically mentions his goodness, his grace and things like that. We're not going to take time to explain what those things mean today. Instead, I want us to to understand. God is in charge about what he reveals about himself to us. Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God replied, here's what I'll reveal about myself to you. Moses has to then decide, is that enough? Is that good enough? Or is it not? Because those are the only two choices Moses has at this moment. When we seek to know God better and we seek to see his glory, God will choose what he reveals about himself to us. We're not in the driver's seat on on, on really anything. We're seeking God is determining what we need to know, what we need to see, what we need to experience in that moment. Those are God's terms. Also, we understand that there are limits to what we can understand. Look at verse 20. It says, you cannot see my face for mankind shall not see me and live. God put a limit on on Moses' request. He couldn't see God's face. God goes on to say no one could see his face and live. The idea, the reasoning behind it is God is so holy, so righteous, so pure, so glorious that basically it would destroy sinful humans to look full in his face prior to the redemption and uh, of Christ and, and what happens when Jesus has saved us. It goes on, verse 21, the Lord said, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about. While my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God isn't telling Moses nothing. God is saying, here's what I'm going to show you, but it's as much as you can bear at this time. Right now, Moses, you're not ready for more. Here's what I know you can handle. Here's what I know you're ready for. And God would show Moses that. We're limited, but God is not. Our limitations means there are limits to what we can understand about God. No one on this earth knows everything there is to know about God. The greatest revelation of God came in the person of Jesus Christ, but even with This revelation of himself, there are things about God we cannot fully understand. There are two reasons for it. The first is our personal lack of spiritual immaturity. 
If you've ever tried to explain the wonders of an internal combustion engine to a three-year-old, you understand how maturity relates to understanding. It's very similar with us. There are some truths in God's word we will only understand as we grow, as we mature. Our spiritual immaturity limits what we're able to learn at the moment, what we're able to comprehend at the moment. But as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're able to understand more and receive more. Second reason is we are finite beings seeking to understand an infinite God. Francis Chan says it this way. If God is the size of all the oceans on the earth and our minds are the size of a Coke can, how hard will it be for us to wrap our tiny minds around the greatness of God? And that's exactly right. God is so great, we will never fully comprehend everything about Him in this life. But think about what this does for us. We never grow bored with God. We never grow bored with Jesus. We never grow bored with Holy Spirit. We never grow bored with God's Word. Because there's always more. So much more to understand. How can we be bored when there's so much more to know? So much more to experience. So much more to to wrap our little minds around. Anyone who thinks they know all there is to know, they have all the answers about God, about Jesus, about Holy Spirit, about God's Word, they're the spiritual equivalent of a kindergartner coming home after the first day of school saying there's no reason to go back. They learned everything there is to know on that first day. We will spend our whole lives on this earth seeking to see God's glory, to know Him better. And as much as we will grow, as much as we will learn, it's not even going to scratch the surface. And then when we end in this life and we go into the next, guess what we're going to do? We're going to spend eternity Beholding His glory, understanding His greatness, having a deeper, fuller understanding of who He is, what He does, why He's worked in the way He has. We are never, in all of eternity, even going to get to the fullness of the knowledge of the greatness, the glory of God. As we set out to seek God and His glory, we have to go to God on God's terms. God will reveal His glory to us if we're genuinely seeking Him and His glory. But, but, we're not genuinely seeking God. And we're not genuinely seeking His glory unless we're going on His terms. Secondly, we are genuinely seeking God and His glory when we go to God with obedience to God. Now, before Moses gets to see God's glory, verse five, the Lord descends. Moses has some stuff he has to do. He has to prepare himself and the preparation is is really all about obedience. 
In verse 1, he's to cut out tablets like the former ones. So Moses had came down from the mountain. He had the Ten Commandments. He saw the people worshiping the golden calf in a moment of anger. He smashed the tablets. And then God says, okay, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments again, but you need to cut out two more stones just like the first. So Moses has to cut those out. Verse 2, look at verse 2. So be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. So Moses now has to, to get all of this finished. He has to get the tablets done by morning. And early in the morning, he has to go up the mountain and present himself there to God at the, the top of the mountain. Verse 3, Moses has to go alone. No one is to come up with you, nor let anyone be seen anywhere in the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of the mountain. So Moses is to go up alone. Now this is different because when Moses was up before, Joshua went with him. Joshua went most of the way up, stayed a little bit away, but he went with him, but not this time. This time it's just Moses all alone. So this, these are the, the way God says to it. This is how you have to prepare, Moses. You want to see my glory? Go cut some stones. Have it done by the morning. Come up to me at the top of the mountain. Come alone. What will Moses do at this point? God's given him a promise, given him the assurance. He will get to see it, but it's conditional. Moses can't stay where he is and lounge in his tent and watch Desperate Housewives and get to see the glory of God. Instead, he has to do the things God told him to do in the way God told him to do it. Even in the time frame, God told him it needed to be done. And then if he did, he would get to experience it. So what would Moses do? Look at verse 4. He cut the two stone tablets like the former ones. Moses got up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, and here's the key phrase. As... The Lord had commanded him. Moses did exactly what God told him to do. He did it the way God told him to be done. And he did it in the time frame God said it needed to be done. All of this was an act of obedience. Obedience is a foundational aspect to our lives as disciples of Jesus. No part of our lives is not affected by obedience. Is not affected. All parts of our life are affected. At the same time, there is very little in the life of a disciple of Jesus that is as misunderstood as obedience. In, in our day, we have determined that we are autonomous Self-governing beings. Therefore, we can essentially choose and do whatever we want to do. Therefore, for anyone to say obedience is required for anything at all, we call that legalism. But obedience is not a synonym for legalism. When we read God's word, we find obedience from the beginning to the end is always important. But when we read God's word, we find obedience is less about our salvation and more about our response to salvation and our relationship with God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We can't add anything to that 
and it still be the message of salvation. We can't take anything away from that and it still be the message of salvation. However, our response to being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, it necessarily produces obedience to the Jesus who saved us. However, we must not limit obedience that flows from salvation by grace through faith to merely don't sin. Because it's far more than that. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't sin's a part of it. But it's not just that. Notice in our text, God did not tell Moses, don't commit adultery. He didn't tell him not to be killing people. He didn't tell him, don't go worship the golden calf. He, he didn't tell Moses to do any, to not sin. What he said, what he told Moses to do was to cut tablets, to be ready in the morning, to walk up the mountain, to come by himself, and then he would get to experience. The point of all of this is obedience. The testing of obedience. Did God need Moses to cut stones? Of course not. He's God. Did, did, did God have to, did it have to be in the morning? Is God's glory more evident in the morning than it is in the afternoon or the evening? Of course not. God's glory is shines brighter than anything. Did, is God only the God at the top of the mountain and not the bottom? Of course not. God is God everywhere. Was it wrong for Joshua to have gone up with Moses the first time around? No. So why this time? Why cut the tablets? Why come in the morning? Why come up the mountain? Why come alone? To do what God said. To test Moses and see, did he desire God and God's glory enough to obey him and what God said to do? It's the test for you and I as well. Do we desire God and God's glory enough to be willing to obey him? Not, not just in the, the big sin. Hey, don't kill people. Don't cheat on your spouse. Not, not just in that. But in anything he may lead us to do. I could give, specific, I could give examples, but there's no telling. It could, it's as numerous as there are people in here and as there are seconds in the day. God could lead us on a moment by moment basis to do any number of things. And in all of those moments, it's a, it's a test. Do I desire God and his glory enough to do what he says in this moment? And if we want to see God, if we want to see his glory, then we must be willing to be obedient to God in whatever way he leads us. God will show us his glory if we genuinely seek him and his glory. But we are not genuinely seeking God and his glory if we are not willing to obey him. I cannot legitimately live in rebellion against God and claim to be seeking Him and His glory at the same time. When we are genuinely seeking God and His glory, we go to God on God's terms. We go to God with obedience. And then we go to God in humility about God. 
Verse 5, Moses goes up the mountain. God comes down in the midst and stood there as Moses called upon the name of the Lord. I can't fathom what Moses must have seen, what he must have experienced in that moment as he is surrounded by the glory of God. It must have been incredible. But it wasn't just an experience of what he saw and what he felt, but also what he heard. Verse 6, the Lord passed by and began to proclaim his character and his nature. As God begins to do this in verse 6 and 7, he gives us a good picture of, of what he's like. When we come to God, we're seeking God and his glory. We we accept him as he is, not as we might imagine him to be. One of the greatest dangers of all all time has been idolatry. The people of God have always been easily drawn into idolatry. and It's easy for us. To say, well, I mean, I would never make a golden calf and bow down and worship it. Sure, none of us would. But that doesn't mean our hearts aren't prone to idolatry. Idolatry for us here in America is less about building something and bowing to it. And more about building an idea of God. Who we want him to be. Right? But we don't get to do that. Now, let me be clear. If God was make-believe, sure, pick and choose, make your own Yahweh, make him like however you want him to be. If he's not real, if he is our imaginary friend in the sky, we get to make our imaginary friend whatever we want him or her or it to be all fair game in the world of imagination. But if there is a God and he has revealed himself through his word and through his son, then this God is like something. He's not something we get to pick and choose. I mean, think about it in your life. Right? How many of you have said something like, hey, I am who I am. You can take me or leave me. Right? It's what we feel about ourselves, but, but God, he doesn't get to do that. I mean, he's only God. Right? I'm going to pick and choose the parts of God I want. Well, that part about God is it's seen in this scripture. I don't really like that. I don't think my God is like that. And, and to be sure, if you do that, your God isn't like that because your God is make-believe. If we pick and choose the parts of God we like and reject the parts of God we don't like, we are not worshipers of Yahweh. We are idolaters who worship an imaginary God who cannot save us. And has no power on this earth. So we have to go to God in humility about God saying you are who you say you are. Not you are who I imagine you to be or who I want you to be. So who is God? Well, he is the Lord in verse six. He is the Lord, the Lord God. Reminds us of his power and his authority. 
In other words, he's God and we aren't. He gets to set the rules. He sets the standard of what's right and wrong. Not not culture, not our opinions, not our ideas. God, the Lord. Not only is he the Lord who is who sets the standard. He does not exist to serve us. We're not Lord. We're servant. We exist to serve the Lord. The Lord does not exist to serve us. He's not only the Lord. He is compassionate and merciful. Now, I don't know about y'all. I'm really keen on mercy and grace. I've needed both of those a billion times in my life, several times today. Part of the very fabric of who God is. is compassion and mercy. I mean, that's why Jesus came. Because God is compassionate and merciful. That's why Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin and showed us our need for Jesus. Because God is compassionate and merciful. That's why we can go to Him in prayer and ask for help. Believing Hebrews 4 that we will find the mercy and grace to help us in our time of need because he is merciful and compassionate. God desires to show us compassion. He desires to show us mercy. How great is that? But who else is he? He is slow to anger. Again, I am really, really glad about that. Often God particularly in the Old Testament, is is accused of being harsh and vengeful and angry. And when people do that, what they say is they point to the Old Testament where God pours out judgment and punishment on people. Or in Revelation, the the tribulation period, or hell. And, And to be sure, those things are real. God really did pour out some pretty awful punishments on people in the Old Testament. He really did kill Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. The stuff in Revelation, and it's going to happen. And hell, it is the sure and certain destination of all people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. So the problem with those things isn't that they aren't true. The problem is the way people overlook other truths to jump to a mean God who would do those things. For example, in the Old Testament, long before God ever sent judgment... He sent something else. Prophets. Prophets who went to the people saying, thus says the Lord. You agreed to live for God in this way, but you're doing this instead. Why don't you stop doing these abominable things God hates and and turn back? And they ignored it. So God sent more prophets saying, hey, the last guy said turn back. But here I'm going to tell you, turn back or else. And they ignored that guy. Okay, it's coming. I mean, like, they're at the door. They're at the gate right now. They're they're rounding up around the city. But right now, in this moment, if you will repent and turn to God, He will fight against those people out there. He will conquer them. And all will go well for you in here. And they ignored them. And then judgment fell upon them. Sure, the stuff in tribulation in Revelation is awful. But you know there's a way out of that. It's to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely, hell is, I think, far worse than what we understand it to be. But there's a way out of that too. 
repent of our sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done everything necessary so that no one has to experience judgment at all. All people have to do is repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great God who sacrificed his own son for rebellious people who choose to do their own thing and say, I don't need that, I can do it myself. And yet he still sent Jesus to die. How gracious is that? How slow to anger is that? I wasn't saved the first time I heard the gospel. First time I made any sort of decision for Jesus, I was 19 years old. And then I joined the army. And I did all manner of awful things while I was in the army. And all that while, God was always sending people, sending things, drawing me to himself. And finally I surrendered to that. And I went back to the army and I tried to live for Jesus. And then I I fell away with a... I, I mean... The long-suffering, slow to anger of God, I promise you, I am a living, breathing example of that. If God were not slow to anger, He would have smote me like He smote Uzziah years ago. God is slow to anger. God abounds in faithfulness, it tells us. Faithfulness and truth. God abounding in faithfulness and truth is important because everything we know about God is revealed to us in his word. Everything we hope for from God is revealed to us in his word. And if God is not 100% faithful and 100% truthful, our hope for anything is shaky at best. But he is faithful. He is true. God shows mercy and God forgives sins. He forgives wrongdoings and violations of his law. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we've kind of covered it in other ways. But wrongdoing and violation of the law and sin. Those things kind of picture different things. Wrongdoing is sort of like going astray. Violation of God's law is saying, God says, don't touch this. And we, we go, you, don't touch this. Don't don't touch this. And sin is what we often call missing the mark. Right? We we shoot for the bullseye. We try to do what we're supposed to, but we don't quite make it. And the truth we're seeing in this is God forgives all of those. He forgives us when we go astray like sheep. He forgives us when he says, Thou shalt not, and we're like, Oh, but I shall. And he forgives us when we try our best, and our best just doesn't cut it. God forgives. But God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God executes righteousness and justice. God forgives sin through Jesus. But God never excuses sin. God will forgive anything we've ever done through Jesus. But he will not overlook a single thing. Anyone has ever done wrong. God is just and a just God must punish sin. And so either we will trust Jesus and we will let him bear the punishment our sins have earned. Or we will reject Jesus and we will bear the punishment our sins have earned. Either way. God will execute justice and righteousness. Now, the last of verse 7 seems strange. 
inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. That seems a bit unfair. Seems unfair just on the face of it. Seems unfair because Deuteronomy 24.16 tells us the children will not be punished for their parents' sin or the parents will not be punished for their children's sin. So what, what does this mean then? To understand this, think about for a second about the influence parents have on their children. Generally, kids accept as right what their parents teach them is right. What their parents accept as right. Also, generally, what parents do in moderation, kids will take to excess. This can be good and bad. If we teach our children to love God and to obey God through our words and our actions and our lifestyle, there's a very, very good chance they will follow our words, our actions, and our lifestyle. That's very good. On the other hand, if we teach our children it is okay to ignore God, to disobey God with our words, our actions, and our lifestyles, they will likely pick that up as well. And that is very, very bad. The idea here seems to be how important it is for parents to train up their children in the way they should go. Because if if I train my children not to follow Jesus, not to live a devoted life, to, to be hypocritical, to be one way at church, another way at home, to not really show Jesus the love and devotion that he deserves, it's going to have an impact upon them. But it doesn't end with them. They will likely then train up their children in the way I trained up my children. And it goes on from generation to generation to the third and the fourth generation. The idea of God inflicting punishment is if I teach my daughters, it's okay to ignore Jesus and it's okay to disobey Jesus. So that's what they do. God's not going to forgive them because it was my fault. They are going to be held accountable for their own rebellion and their own rejection of God. And the grandchildren will be held accountable for their rebellion and their rejection of God. As parents, it's very, very important that we understand the potential consequences of the life we live and what we train our children through not just our words, through our actions, through our attitudes, through our priorities, our values. They see, they see not just what we say, they see what we do, how we live. And it will have a long-term impact on them. And if our example leads them astray, we're not the ones that's going to suffer for it. They are. These things that it tells us about God here tell us a lot. We learn a lot about who God is and what God is like. And we're left with a measure of response now to that. We can arrogantly say, no, no, God's not like that. God is the way I want him to be. I don't like these things. Or we can, in humility, say... This is who God has proclaimed himself to be. Therefore, that is who God is. And I embrace God as he is, not as I might imagine him to be. 
And if we are genuinely seeking God in his glory and we want to see God in his glory, we have to go to God with humility about God. He knows far more of who he is than we do. We cannot make him in our imagination as we would like him to be. We must embrace him as he is or we reject him outright. Those truly are the only two choices there are. Now, verse 8, Moses hurried to bow down low to the ground to worship. This is the proper response to seeing the glory of God. Greater revelation of God does not make us proud, does not make us puffed up, does not cause us to elevate ourselves over others. It humbles us. It drops us to the ground In fact, it makes us care about others deeply. Look at what he goes on to say. If in any way I have found favor in your sight, please let the Lord go along in our midst. Even though the people are obstinate, rebellious. Pardon our wrongdoing and our sin. Take us as your own possession. Now, I like the the language here. Moses sees God in this glory like this. He falls to the ground. And if he's found favor with God, then God, please go with us in our midst. There's the admission the people are obstinate. But notice this last part. Pardon our wrongdoing and our sin. It's interesting. Moses didn't do what they did. Moses didn't worship the golden calf. He wasn't there. He was on the top of the mountain with God. And yet he still lumps himself into the midst with them. Pardon our wrongdoing. Why would he do that? Because in in the light of the glory of God, Moses knew he needed grace and mercy just like they did. Sure, he may not have made the calf and worshipped it. But he did have anger management issues. He had killed a man at another point in his life. He's going to make mistakes as the future. In light of the glory and greatness of God, Moses knows I need grace just as much as anybody else does. Seeing the glory of God, it it humbles us, causes us to bow down, causes us to care about others, ceases to elevate ourselves above others. And we put ourselves, God, have mercy on us because, God, we are obstinate. We are wrong and we sin. There, There will never be a time. In your life or mine where we do not need God's grace. And if ever there's a moment where we think we don't need it. The reality is our eyes are just so far off of God. That we're proud and puffed up. And oh if you don't see your need for grace this morning. How desperately you need to cry out for God to show you his glory. So he can humble you in that moment. We need God's grace every moment of every day of our lives. Pride pushes us away from God. Humility leads us to bow down before Him. Stand. And I do, I know it's... A little bit late. 
But I want to give us time to respond. A message like this does demand a response from us. Not because I preached it. It's not that. This is, this is thus saith the word of God. And if we truly want to know God better. I mean, I'm not going to say this is the step-by-step path. I'm saying this is a part of what it means to genuinely seek God in His glory. And it would be, to me, seem silly for me to spend however long I've spent telling us what it looks like to seek God in His glory and not give us an opportunity to seek God in His glory. So I'm going to pray right here. You can come to the altars to pray. But let's use this time to seek God, to seek His glory, crying out, show me your glory, God. Altars are open if you want to come.